Hello and welcome back to the True Crime Guys podcast. I'm Lauren. And I'm Michael. What's up, Creepers? How's everybody doing? Coming at you again with another freebie. Good one. Pirate. Pirate. Yeah, <laughs> I like it. Get, get your... Hide your booty. Hide We're your coming <laughs> for you. Hide your booty. You better get moving on the peg leg if you're going to make a run for it. Yeah, <laughs> tell your pirate. Yeah, so... Uh, What's been going on? Uh, we kind of, some people may know, all the, the Patreon subscribers may know, but this is the first chance to let the, uh, the freeloaders know that we're no longer, no longer recording in person anymore together in the same studio. We have to do this remotely. Right. But I think we figured it out to where it sounds just like we're in studio. We still have that same rapport and chemistry. We've been doing it together for two and a half years. So oh, yeah. I don't think it'll be a problem. But the reason, reason we have to do that, if you want to tell people, um, yeah, mine's well. I'm sure some of you have seen on social media and things like that, but I am moving back to North Carolina um, to be closer to my family and, and friends and things like that. And um, But we, we're going to keep the show going. So we've been, I'm currently still in Southern Nevada. So we're doing, but you know, if you don't know me and Lauren live two hours away from each other, even though we both live in Southern Nevada currently. So, you know, recording mm-hmm. remotely is uh, something that we thought we could go ahead and practice and <laughs> save a little bit of gas, save yeah. a little bit of time, you know? So this, this is it, worked out well. It almost feels like, why were we not, it almost feels like, why were we not doing this for like the last year? Cause man, those days of having to, <laughs> when it was your turn to drive to the other person, it was a long ass day. Oh, it's brutal. You got to get up. You're getting up at the crack of dawn to get here at seven because you know, our studios are outside. So you got to beat the heat. You know, you got to yeah. beat the heat out here, and then you know you have the two to three hour recording session. Then you got another two hour ride home. Like it was, it was like another day of work. You know, with uh, with that. Yeah, work. and but, if anything went wrong, you were kind of stuck there too. Like now, if something goes wrong, we can just be like, ah, we'll try it in a little bit. You know, exactly. like if, if there's something that comes up and we have to quit recording in the middle of it or whatever, it's something yeah. we depend on technology. If a piece of technology is not working, it's like you're not going to drive home then two hours and then have to come back again to record. Now we can just like. All right, well, I'll call you in a little bit, and we'll try it yeah, again. <laughs> exactly. <That's> pretty nice. <laughs> oh, we'll, just, we'll try it tomorrow morning, you know, whatever it is. Yep. So, yeah, yep. so that's uh, that's happening here in the next week. That being said, there's been a couple bumps in the road. Like, last was it last episode? I uh, I forgot to hit record, and we lost, like, 20 minutes of gold, and then this <laughs> week we had another, another slight bump in the road. <laughs> you know what was good about that, though? What was good about that was the fact that we – we went a little long on that intro anyways. We kind of rambled yeah. a little bit, which we, we, we tend to do. We tend, we tend to, do. to do that. Yeah. So it, it kind of gave, uh, gave us a second take, you know. So we got a second take and uh, tightened it up a little bit for that. Uh, we yeah. got all the, all the gold in there still without all the, uh, all the other extra filler, right? Hey, I don't, think, no uh, anybody would, I don't think anybody <laughs> would complain about extra reps. You know, that's how you get better. Practice makes perfect. Even if you have to do the same episode multiple times, it should get right. better in theory, <laughs> as long as you're not in sick theory. of the case, which... Right, exactly, exactly. Which that happens from time to time. You do get yeah. sick of a case, man. Especially like the big yeah. hitters. Sometimes by the time we record it the first time, I'm already sick of it. You know, I like because I've heard it. You know, I've seen documentaries for years and heard other podcasts. Rec- you know, cover cover it, that case for years. And then yep, that's you're what like, I was All just right, about but to we say. do have to do it. So yeah, I was about to say it's it's the cases that you already have a a little grasp on, cases you kind of already know about, and then when you dive into them. You just kind of confirming the things you already thought you knew, and then you're like, "Okay, this mm-hmm. I'm ready to record this and be done with this one." <laughs> but it's always fun. It's always fun to talk about it. This week is the is the opposite of that, though. This week I had no, I've never heard of this character. I'd never heard of this story. It's it's very interesting. 
Um, and it's very uh, unknown and, and little covered. It got kind of buried by history. Like right after this this guy became infamous, like the Civil War happened and Abraham Lincoln got assassinated and all, it just kind of got buried. Right. And now mm-hmm. it's like uh, a couple of books popped up recently. Like Harold Schechter wrote a book that we we uh, got for this case for studying called The Pirate. Mm-hmm. It's a phenomenal book. Very uh, short, but like, Still, like you're you're like you're into it when when you're listening to it or when you're reading it. So, and that's part of his new series that he came out with. I, I guess it's like a, it's an Amazon original series of books that he's doing called the Bloodland series. And and one of them is this this case, the pirate that we're doing. And I think we're gonna do some more of these Bloodland books because if they're all like this, then I'm in, man. Because this is really well written, and well narrated, straight to the point. And Harold Schechter, yeah, Harold Schechter, one of the one of the great true crime writers. So. Can't go wrong with him. And it's got a fucking pirate. What more do you need? It's a pirate. <laughs> the <laughs> last pirate, no right? The last pirate. Yeah, the la- that's what we're, we we're dubbing of. him, the last pirate. Because, yeah, you know, you think when you think pirate, you think a little farther back than the mid-1800s, which is mm-hmm. when he was doing his pirating. Right, but by definition, so. this guy's... Nowadays, you know, the pirate... Now, I guess modern-day pirates, now you think of, like, the internet. You think of people, like, stealing music or something. <laughs> yeah, music pirate. <laughs> it's not as cool. Nowhere near as cool. <laughs> yeah, I just downloaded the new Metallica. <laughs> but I did it on my boat, so I'm a pirate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, let's hear what you got for the intro, and let's dive into this one. All right, let's do it, man. My only ambition was to be rich by some bold stroke, and then to give free reins to the passions and desires which governed me. Albert W. Hicks. Once was a man who sailed these seas. He took whatever, whenever he pleased. Once was a man who sailed these seas and killed men like a disease. A broad chest and two strong arms He was no stranger to turning on the charm The very second you started to relax He would hit you with an axe Everybody! Once was a man who sailed these seas He took whatever whenever he pleased Once was a man who sailed these seas And killed men like a disease Late one night the ghost ship came ashore It was covered in blood and gore It wasn't long before the pirate was found He was in his bed sleeping sound Once was a man who sailed these seas He took whatever whenever he pleased Once was a man who sailed these seas And killed men like a disease Once was a man who sailed these seas Whatever, whenever he pleased Once was a man who sailed these seas And killed men like a disease Alright, so our case this week We're not going to give away the person Who is the pirate right away We're going to go into We're going to let you discover it as The city of New York discovered it and as the detectives un- unfolded this mystery and this character emerged um but we'll we'll, we'll kind of like 
we'll we'll leave it in the shadows for now. And and like I right. like doing things that way. The way that the book presented it, the pirate by Harold Schechter, I really like the way it was presented. It kind of leaves it some, to some suspense. So we'll right. we'll dive into the the some history with New York and and set the the mood for you for this case before we we figure out who this pirate character was in yeah, 1760. And, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say I'm glad you said that because I was totally about to say his name at the beginning. So I would have fucked everything yeah. up. Well, it's okay. It's yeah, it's podcast. We can always we can always go back. I, and and the name's probably in the title of the episode, but no, it's just, not. You know, I'm not going to put it in the title of the episode. Okay, good. good don't read the good. description right. though. Don't read the description. Don't don't do that. Why would you do that? Yeah, why would you do that? Wait till afterwards. <laughs> just listen to it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So let's set the setting in, in New York City. It, it, this this episode starts in an unlikely place. It starts with oysters. You wouldn't really expect, you know a murder podcast about a pirate to start with oysters, but it, the oysters play a big role in this case. So, Yeah, they do. So in, in 1760, the first restaurant in New York City to serve oysters opened. Oysters soon became one of the biggest commodities in, in NYC with more than $6 million worth of oysters being sold annually. It became like, it, 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 was, it seemed like that's all anyone, anyone in New York was eating there for like, a good hundred years was just oysters. Yeah, and at six cents an oyster, like that's a lot of damn oysters. I think they were just they were just striking while the market was hot. You know, these things were everywhere. I think in the in the canals and the bays, right yeah. around New York, right there. And it was just like it was easy money. Mm-hmm. It's like they're right here. But eventually, that started to yep. uh, started to uh, deplete really quick, huh? You know what they did? They did what fucking humans do. They find something good and they just suck it dry, dude. Like right now in Vegas, That's we're just like the, the housing market's good, so they're just building as fast as they could possibly build, and they're just going to outbuild the market like they usually do, and then it's just going to crash. Yep. That's what happens. That's it's what, like, let's get it while we can. About. While the iron's hot, let's fucking get all them goddamn oysters out of the fucking water. And, and Capitalism, just, bro. You know, they just dry it up. They just sucked up every oyster out of that ocean, and so... That's kind of where this story starts. They by the mid 1800s, all the local oysters had been picked clean in the sloop ships. Mm-hmm. I'd never heard the term sloop until this case either. By the way, it was no, like a, a certain type of ship back then, I guess. Um, sloop ships began sailing down to areas like Chesapeake to acquire oysters to sell to stores and restaurants in NYC. And I'm sure they were able to do that at a premium since the demand was still there, but the supply wasn't. You know, so right? They, they're getting big money to sail down and get oysters elsewhere. Um, and in the second week of March 1860, a ship called the Sloop A.E. Johnson was set to make one of those trips down to Chesapeake. Aboard the Sloop was a, was Captain George H. Burr, brothers Oliver and Smith Watts, two guys that uh, Captain George Burr had had uh, sail with him before mm-hmm. um, on trips just like this, and he trusted these two. And he was bringing on another uh, new person onto the ship named William Johnson, who he had recently met, who he really hit it off with. He was a, a large, strapping capable dude and he was very friendly and like they just hit it off william johnson and, and george burr he's also very knowledgeable um about about ships and boats and like he was handy on deck there was no part of the crew that he couldn't fulfill and so he was very impressed with his knowledge yeah it was apparent he had had uh, experience sailing before you know right which we find out why later <laughs> yeah he had quite a Yarr. bit of experience <laughs> foreshadowing <laughs> yeah so this george burr guy he was the the captain of this ship he was very trusting and and took william johnson at his word and he decided to add him as another deckhand for their trip down to chesapeake to get some of these oysters to bring back to new york um he had grown to quickly like and trust him so much so that even like uh leading up to their trip he had 
um, captain had been sending letters to his wife saying how much he really liked this this William Johnson guy, and he was excited to go on this trip with him. So in the second week of March, 1860, they set off on their their journey down to Chesapeake. Um, it's going to take a little while. Like they're they're stopping here and there. Like they stopped in Brooklyn for a few days. And it's all going well. However, several days later, in the early morning hours of March 21st, 1860, Coast Guards uh, in the, around New York City see a ghastly sight. This, this ship comes drifting through the fog. They had had reports of a, a, some sort of a ghost ship striking a different sloop in the middle of the night. This sloop reported mm-hmm. back to the Coast Guard that there's this ship that struck them, and they called out, and no one answered from the other boat and they were just kind of like thought it was strange and so the coast guard went out looking and sure enough here comes this ghost ship drifting through the early morning fog and when they upon boarding the ship they just found just a horror scene um the deck was just bathed in blood um including a set of severed fingers on the deck as well here's a description from the scene oh wow sounds like uh sounds I was gonna say it sounds like somebody uh, got got their hook. They got their hook this on this trip. That's pretty. That's pretty uh, honorable, right, right, for a pirate. Yeah, I guess so. Someone to get their hook. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, this is fine. Someone, someone got promoted. Oh, this is. <laughs> oh, this is I see great. what you're saying because they lost their fingers. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe it's just an upgrade. <laughs> right. These, that's a. Are these that's pesky fingers? What good are those pesky fingers, anyways? <laughs> If I just had one, it would be much better if they were sharp. If I only had a hook to pull in the ropes from the, the mast. <laughs> Why a hook? Like, nice. man, that's all they could come up with back then? I guess a hook would be pretty handy on a ship. You could just hook I, things, you know? I think it was just the simplest, and it's also very intimidating. I mean, you imagine, you know, because pirates, captains, they used to always, like, hook their mates by their shirt, you know, and pull them to them or whatever. Get your ass up there and scrub the poop deck. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, get that, get busy. I'll shove this hook up your arse. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's way worse. I mean, if it's a couple fingers, you know, that's just a whole different scene. You know what I'm saying? Nope. Yeah, nobody <laughs> wants a hook up the booty. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so here's a description of the ghastly scene on this this A.E. Johnson from the uh, Coast Guard that discovered it. Quote: A coffee pot covered with blood and human hair was found in a corner near the stove a broom which apparently had been used in sweeping blood from the floor, and a hammer also smeared with blood were found nearby the companionway. Marks of blood were found on the ladder leading up to the deck, upon the lockers, upon the sides of the cabin, and upon the ceiling. There were found fresh and distinct marks as if made with the blade of a sharp knife or hatchet upon the beams and ceilings, and one of the indentations was stained with blood. The runs were, upon further examination, filled with blood and had leaked down from the floor and had been allowed to remain on the clotted state in which they were discovered. All of the lockers and drawers were stained with blood, probably by the assassin in search of plunder, as also the stove and cooking utensils. From the cabin, the blood was traced up the companionway to the deck where marks as if produced by the dragging of some bloody substance were observable all along the cabin door to the side of the vessel. The rail, too, was smeared with blood, and also the side of the sloop showing the assassin concluded his work by throwing the evidence of his guilt into the sea. The finger marks of blood on the rail and the indentation of a knife leads to believe that the murderer was compelled to sever the hand of his victim as he clung to the frail support before he could throw himself overboard. So one of the men on this... You know, why didn't he throw the fingers? I know, right? Well, we find out later that... That is one thing that has... Well, we find out later that he planned to... 
to uh, sink the ship anyway, you know. And that, that, that's where this whole thing that's went true. wrong is that this, they also found holes down uh, in the cabin of the – it was down in the cabin where the holes had been drilled? Yes, down <clears> the bottom to, of the boat. Uh, yeah, in order to – in an attempt to sink the ship, but they had gotten clogged up, right? And we're, it's unclear what, what clogged them, potentially blood, when it, the way it sounds with as much blood as there was on this ship. Yeah, it definitely could have been dried blood, is right. Yeah, something clogged up the holes that this this perpetrator had drilled in order to try and sink the ship, and it, and then his attempt had failed. And had this person properly done this, uh, been able to sink the ship, he probably would have gotten away with it for sure. Especially when yeah, you we wouldn't be the, talking about it. Yeah, I mean, you look at the um, lackluster detectives' uh, abilities they had back then. They didn't have DNA. They didn't have a lot of the stuff that we have now. So. Right. Yeah. They did a damn good job to not have that stuff, though. Oh, dude, they did some amazing old-school, ear-to-the-ground, footwork, detective work, (laughs) just amazing. like Running down witnesses. Straight-up Sherlock Holmes shit. Yeah, straight-up Sherlock Holmes stuff. So um, (laughs) the city was shocked by the gruesome scene and and intrigued by the mystery of what might happen. Police detectives could see that a small sailboat was missing from the ship and began to search for it. So, yeah, there was like a, a small little rowboat that was attached to the ship for an emergency, and that was gone, which led them to believe that, you know, whoever had done this got away. Um, after a few days, a local boy led them to where it had been abandoned in some rushes near Fort Tompkins on Staten Island. So this person had gotten away, and they'd found the, they'd found the rowboat. Another thing that, had, if that had that not happened, he also wouldn't have been caught, it sounds like, because this is where they started their investigation, was where that rowboat was found. That's now their right. center point to start this and thing. They, and they knew about the rowboat because of the initial boat that crashed into them in the night, because mm-hmm. part of their description was the fact that the, the lifeboat was still there. So that's Which what made creepy. it so eerie. Yeah, that made it so super creepy. eerie to them. <laughs> Yeah, because if you connect the dots, that essentially means that they, that murders may have been t- being taken place while the ships ran into each other. Those guys may have been yelling over to that boat while this this killer was down in the the cabin murdering the captain or something, you know, like or it had just taken place and they just missed witnessing it. Right. They could have just missed him like chopping the fingers off of someone and pushing them into the water. <laughs> Absolutely, you know? or dragging a body up to the top. Can you imagine dragging the body up and you see another ship? Yes. Oh. Uh, He's he had a lot of rum last night. It's this fine. Is awkward. <laughs> <laughs> he just he just throws some sunglasses on him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Weekend at Bernie's. It's like Bernie's day. At Bernie's <laughs> weekend at Bernie's. He's yeah. got him over his shoulder. He's like, he's fine. He's, he's moving fine. his jaw for him. <laughs> <laughs> How you doing? <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> so yeah, the the police get led by this boy to the abandoned bushes where the the uh, rowboat was found. And they talked to the fort's take caretaker where the, you know, so they, they talked to this fort where the uh, rowboat right. landed. And the caretaker had witnessed the whole thing and gave police a very dis- very uh, detailed description of the man who had abandoned the rowboat. They said, uh, this person said that he was tall, power- powerfully built, thick, black whiskers on his jaw. So, you know, as you'd imagine right. with a pirate. He's freaking Blackbeard. That's what it is. Right. Uh, here's a uh, here's a further description, which sounds just so 1800s. He was wearing a slouch hat, a gray monkey jacket with patches on both elbows, a pair of grayish pantaloons <laughs> with patched on the knee, and he carried a bag that was about the size of a feed bag and looked to be filled. Dude, so, pantaloons is my favorite word for pants. Everything but a pirate. 
Yeah, everything but a parrot on the shoulder and a fucking peg leg. <laughs> pantaloons. What color wears pantaloons, boy? Yeah, you know, he looked like a normal fellow. Normal fellow with, the, you know, grayish <laughs> pantaloons. Gray monkey jacket. As That's we wear. You know. Slouchy hat. <laughs> <laughs> he, was, he had a fucking actually pretty cool look, and it, it actually spawned a lot of... Uh, uh, the way that gangsters looked like he this 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 person that we're going to find out soon about uh he inspired a lot of uh attire and uh, and like a whole fashion for bad boys and and gangsters later on like uh, new york gangsters and stuff he wore a slouched hat with like it and he would pull it down over one eye oh yeah he tried to look mysterious and uh he was also he was also known to be uh quite striking as well there's so many resemblances in this case to carl pan's oh. realm so many. It's hard not it's to crazy. mention it. And you'll see him more and more emerge as it goes on. Like he's very much like Carl Panzram. And it was a little bit before Carl Panzram as well. Panzram was born in eighteen nineties. This dude was doing his stuff back in, you know, the eighteen sixties. So. Yeah, may have inspired him. So these uh the police they now Yeah, so the, the police they now have uh, a lead to go on. They talk, they got a description of the man, and they know a general direction maybe of where he was heading. They began to follow a chain of witnesses who had seen the strange man carrying a large, heavy sea bag. The next witnesses they encountered was the dock keeper at Vanderbilt Landing, where steamboats ferried passengers to and from Manhattan. The man had to wait an hour for the next ferry and inquired about where he could get something to eat. The dock keeper took him to a small nearby saloon. And so his, his like, very... Um, abnormal look is what's is kind of what's his downfall as well like he's he just doesn't he's just this guy that came out of the sea this is just pirate looking black beard with carrying a big right. sea bag and he's just he's, everybody everywhere he goes it's just hard to miss him you know and so he goes to this restaurant and while eating the man told the dock keeper quite the story claiming he was the captain of a sloop named the william tell and that his ship had been run into a by another schooner he claimed that the collision uh, caused one of his two crew members to be crushed against the mast, impaling himself. The other crew member, he claimed, had been knocked overboard. So right. quite a tale he's telling to this So you just left him? <laughs> so I just left uh, him. <laughs> yeah. I left him and took the money. What's a man to do? We had a minor collision. One of them, we had a minor collision. One of them impaled. You know, that happens. And the other one went overboard. And I just happened to take all their shit. And so here's a $100 bill. And he's also flashing money oh around God, everywhere. He's, he's trying to pay he's with flashing. these huge gold coins and stuff for these for, for a meal, yeah. for like a small meal, which is probably, probably at that time, what, like eight, ten cents? I mean, it was six cents for an oyster. So, I mean, for a whole meal, you know, right. he's, these people are ridiculous. So that doesn't help either. That really draws a lot of attention. He further claimed that he had been sleeping at the time and woke to find the boat sinking, so he grabbed as many valuables as he could and left to row safely to shore. After his meal, the man took the next steamboat ferry and disembarked at the battery. He stopped for food once again, this time getting coffee and pie at a refreshment stand. After his snack, he made his way south to Street Broker and exchanged $170 worth of gold and silver coins for small denomination bills. Finally a smart move. Instead of flashing around gold coins every time you buy some fish and chips, you know. <laughs> right. Probably should have probably should have done that at the beginning. Yeah, exactly. Um, the detectives had followed these witnesses' sightings all the way back to an apartment in Manhattan. So they're just tracking his steps. He's leaving a, bre a breadcrumb everywhere he goes, if you will. Um, or what's mm -hmm. a more piratey reference we could make to, to be leaving behind gold coins? Uh, or 
parrot shit. He's dropping booty all over the place. They're they're just following the parrot shit all the way to fucking Manhattan. The parrot shit. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, you gotta you gotta remember though, like this dude thinks this ship is gone. So he thinks he has nothing to worry about. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he thinks this is in the bottom of the ocean, and he's like, Mm -hmm. I don't care what they got on me. They got no proof because they got no bodies. They got no ship. Yeah, and back then that was a death sentence for a a murder trial uh, with no, with lack of a better term. Uh, Basically, if you didn't have a body back then, you you were not getting convicted for for murder. Like that was kind of like the right the uh, smoking gun in their case is Mm -hmm. is the body. So yeah, he's under the impression that he's totally there's no way they're going to get him for this. And he and when we later find out he's done stuff like this before, so he has reason to believe that. This won't be any different, but you know, sometimes you get sloppy when you do stuff like this a lot, as we've seen time and time again on this show. That's right. By this time, however, yeah, the man had fled the city. Yeah, so they 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 track him down to Manhattan to this apartment, but by this time, he had already fled the city. Now detectives knew who he was, though, and they continued to follow a chain of witnesses who remembered a large man with a wife and a ch- small child taking trains and boats. So it appears as though when he got to Manhattan to this apartment, um, that's where he had his wife and child. He then picked them up after getting this big score of money, and they were fleeing well, whatever kind of pressure they were, you know. He was just bad, thought it was a good idea to, to ditch out, which it probably was. Because, I mean, even though he thinks there's, even though he thinks there's no way that he can be con- convicted for this because they won't find the ship or the bodies, he does know that what the police know is that there's a lot of people that knew he was going on this trip with Captain Burr and these these two other deckhands, mm-hmm. all of their family members and friends were told, "Yeah, we're taking this this William Johnson character with us, and he's the one that's, you know, the the kind of the wild card in the situation." They didn't know him. Burr had gone with the other two before, successfully, right. and now this William Johnson guy goes on a trip, and all of a sudden, you know, this this bloody ghost ship is found, and it's that's basically exactly the, the, and he. He's the main suspect, essentially, is this William Johnson guy who's nowhere to be found. Right, and he doesn't and he doesn't blend in well. Like again, like we said, like this guy sticks yeah. out like a sore thumb in this time. He's tall for this time period. He's a big guy, burly guy, you know, very, looking very mysterious and carrying all their belongings. So you know, it's it's kind of it's kind of fishy. Yeah, if you will, no doubt. <laughs> so, <laughs> so when police found the last witnesses to see him, a cabbie who took Johnson to a boarding home outside Providence, Rhode Island, they surrounded the house in the middle of the night. And he was there this time. They were able to take him captive. He was actually in bed with his wife, and seven police officers surrounded his bed. And what's what's crazy is his demeanor through this whole thing is very, I guess you could say, Pan's Ram-esque. We're just chilling. He never showed any signs right. of emotion or uh, remorse or anything. He just had this chilling calmness to him. So, like, when they surrounded his bed and woke him up, he just kind of got out of bed casually, started putting his pants on, and... And it's like that to me is quite a sign of guilt from a, a very uh, scary man. It's like you, you, you think, think it's seven a sign poli- of guilt. Yeah, because like if if seven police officers are surrounding my bed in the morning, say tomorrow morning, I'm gonna be demanding answers. Why the fuck are you here? What what could I have possibly done that would force you to surround me with seven police officers in my bed in my house? Oh, like, okay. If you're innocent, so you're like, saying he's not surprised. Yeah, you know what? Like we've seen interrogation after interrogation, doing studying cases on this. The guilty people, they tend to be a little bit more. They're not as angry about why they're being interrogated. Typically, an innocent person is like, "I didn't do anything. Why the fuck am I here? What is going on?" You know, like mm-hmm. that, they have that mentality. Like if someone came to you and, and accused you of murdering 
one of your children or whatever, and and they're putting oh, yeah. you in an interrogation room, wouldn't you be like, you guys need to be out there finding who the fuck did this? Wouldn't you be angry and, and yelling at them as I opposed to saying. like, I swear I didn't do this, I swear. But you also got to look at it from the standpoint of this guy is very confident. Like, it, supposedly, he's gotten away with this a lot of times, and he thinks, he still thinks that there's no evidence against him. So he's like, why get all, you know, why get all up in arms about it? Because they're going to go through this process. They're going to question me. They got nothing on me. So I'm just going to, I'm going to cooperate. Yeah. I'm going to cooperate like an innocent man would and be on my way. I think you could look at it like that as well. Or you could look at it as a guilty man who's done this many times and gotten away with it, and he's very confident, but that doesn't mean he's innocent, <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's, yeah. that's a, the, the, there's like the third category. It's like the, the innocent person who should be angry. There's the guilty person who's maybe not done this a bunch, and, they, and we see it like on First 48 and stuff where they break down and cry, and then they end up admitting they did it or whatever. And then right. there's the third one that's like, like we said, like the Panzram category, where it's like they're this chilling, chilling, uh, remorseless demon that just kills and like, well, I'll get away with it, and I'll just keep calm, and I don't have to tell them anything, and I'll just sit here with a smile on my face, knowing I did it, but knowing they can't prove it. That's kind of the category he falls into. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, so when the police, uh, when the police, um, they take him into custody, they found in his possession Captain Burr's watch, several Oops. money bags, and a, photo- <laughs> and a photograph belonging to Watts, among other damning evidence. So Watts being one of the two, brother, uh, two brothers that were murdered, uh, the deckhands. Right. And I believe there was even, uh, the photograph may have been a locket with Watts's wife's picture in it, which is pretty damning. Yes. When I first heard about this, I was, I was like, why would he take a photograph? But yeah, it's not the photograph that he was after. It's the gold locket that it was kept in that he really wanted. He probably didn't, he might not even known that photograph was in there, to be honest. Yeah, possibly, but that's pretty. That's like open and close. Like, how did you get? How did you get this? This is obviously not yours. It's got this murdered man's um, wife's picture in it. It's one thing to have Captain Burr's watch. That's pretty damning. But you know, there's a, it's possible that that watch was manufactured and there was more of them. But yeah, the photograph locket. That's kind of hard to explain. Exactly. <clears throat> when they got to the police station, Johnson walked into his cell and casually asked for a pipe. As police were leaving the cell, he also casually told them that William Johnson, the name he'd been going by, was uh, was just a name that he was um, he tended to go by when he went to sea. It wasn't re- his real name. He said, quote, I sometimes go by that name when I go to sea, but my right and proper name is Albert W. Hicks. And that's who we're doing this week. I feel like he's I feel like he gave up right here. I feel right here he gave up, right? Yeah, potentially why after would they you, found all why the, would you tell the, him that? the the, uh, the uh, property of the slain men. He may have known that they they had him. And maybe he was just tired at this yeah. point. At this point, he's in his 40s. He's married with a child, and he's been living this... He's this, tired of running? He's been living this this wild pirate lifestyle for many years, as we're about to find out, now that we finally know the identity of this man, Albert Hicks, who, you know, if you know... Right. If you know the story, then you know... If you know, then you know. But if not, we're gonna you're gonna find out right now. If you know, then you know. <laughs> if you know, you know. If you know, then you know me. <laughs> 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 the next morning, police filled Hicks in on why they had arrested him. He claimed to have no knowledge of the crime and assured police they had the wrong man. He acted with such a cool indifference, police were almost convinced that they had the wrong man. So they were probably like, this was a new thing to them, a, a person like this. You know, like this third category I talked about. They were like, if right. he's this calm, maybe he is innocent. But they didn't understand there was, there was, there was in the very small percentile of human beings out there that could be this evil and still stay this calm about it too off well i mean we just learned about serial killers in like the 70s yeah. so yeah this is 18 you know what i'm saying like we this is not 
Exactly. They're, this is not even on the radar. Yeah. They, yeah, they didn't have the FBI profiling yeah. and, and Manhunter and Johnny Douglas right. and, they and all that they think they're yet. done with pirates at this point, too. Yeah. Mindhunter. And they think they're done with pirates, Mine, you know what I Mindhunter mean? Mindhunter Season 2 coming back this month, by the way, mid-August. Cannot wait. Oh, I know. Oh, it's the best I'm, show. I'm looking forward to yeah. it. So the two officers and Hicks took a train back to Manhattan, and they settled amongst the rearmost car, trying to be as in- inconspicuous as possible. Unfortunately, rumors had spread quickly that the Oyster Sloop murderer was on the train, and by the time they got to their first stop in Connecticut, a crowd had gathered at the station. This is a crowd of a few thousand people, like 2,000 people, and the crowd demanded to hit that, they, uh, that the man be delivered to them. It was clear to the police that they intended to lynch him on the spot, so they had to actually pull their revolvers and keep this crowd at bay so that they didn't take matters mm-hmm. into their own hands. That's how upset they were. Because these men that were slain, they were very well-respected, uh, good men. Like, New York City, they were kind of, like, well-known uh, the, to, the, to all the locals, and people loved them, you know, and they, right. and they were very angry about this. Um, similar, But I think this is also a testament as to why this shit didn't happen then, during this time, because yeah. people would do this. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, they could have very easily, that crowd could have very easily overtaken those officers and done what they wanted with him. Yeah. And I'm sure that happened. That I, I know that has happened oh, that's, countless times throughout history. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, that's one way, but but how many innocent people are killed because of rumors and things wasn't like it, that, you know? So this is... Wasn't it the Ed Gein book that we got that told a, a really, like, detailed description of the town that he had grown up, that small town and... Milwaukee or whatever, uh, was it was it Wisconsin? Yeah. yeah. Yep. Um, I believe there was there yes. were stories like that in that of that small town that he had grown up in. There was there was stories of revenge. The town would go and and grab a person who had murdered. There was like a land dispute. And someone mm-hmm. got murdered, and then the town went and, and uh, got this guy and like hung him up and burned the barn and all this shit and took matters in their own their own hands. And nobody got in trouble for it because there was too many of them and they couldn't put it on any one person. Right. Well, like like the Rex McElroy or the Ken Rex McElroy case yes, that we did. Yeah. I mean, that's that's not even They're coming out with a movie of that like, as what, well. 80s? Actually, I believe. I think someone just tweeted us a, oh, really? a screenshot of like a, a film that's being made about that case. Yeah. So that should be good. Oh, I need to check that out. Yeah. That was that was one of my cool. my favorite cases. That was a good one. That was a great book. That was. So. That was. So yeah, they they have this near miss where thousands of people almost get their hands on this uh, Albert Hicks. And, and kill him on the spot. Similar scenes kept presenting themselves at every stop on the way to Manhattan. As the train entered the city, the police would move Hicks to a baggage car. Once the train reached their stop, he was quickly moved from the baggage car into a waiting carriage and quickly taken to the second precinct station house. So it's like they're having to move this guy like he's the president like, so that they, so <laughs> he, does, he actually gets a fair trial and whatnot. Once at the station, right. Hicks was confronted with all of those witnesses who had led police to him, and each time he claimed that they were mistaken and he'd never seen any of them in his life. The prosecution was concerned about being able to convict Hicks over the murder given that the bodies of Hicks' victims were never found. Yeah, so we, as we talked about, without a body, it was very hard to get anyone for a murder conviction back then. That's where, yar, the pirate comes in, which the police used the pirate <laughs> thing to their advantage, or I would say more the... Uh, the prosecutors they used it to their advantage at his preliminary hearing they announced that he would be tried for robbery on the high seas which carried a penalty of death the evidence against him for piracy seemed like an open and shut case so they found they went into they they looked at the fact they knew he murdered these three men in cold blood over just you know a, you know not a large sum of money it was like $230 which back then was a lot of money but it wasn't like you know set yourself up for life type of money 
Um, right. He had murdered these three men over this this amount of gold or whatever. And but they knew that most likely in trial they were not going to be able to convict him without the bodies. So what they they went into the law books, man, and they found this this piracy law which hadn't been used in I'm sure ages. Uh, but still carried a penalty of death. If you were caught robbing someone on the high seas, it carried a penalty of death just like murder would. And they're like, we got this open yep. and shut case. We know he committed this robbery on the sea. That is without a doubt. He's got, the, yeah, he's got the evidence on him. He's got the locket with the picture and the captain's watch and all this stuff. So they, they basically pulled that loophole out of, the, out of their ass, and, and uh, that's how they're going to get this guy hung. Um, Hicks was put on trial and became the sensation of the city press. The physical evidence of his guilt was overwhelming, and the defense made little effective rebuttal. During the trial, the personal items that Hicks had taken from his victims was, uh, and was subsequently found when he was arrested were all identified by the people close to the victims. The trial lasted five days, ending on May 19, 1860. The jury deliberated for seven minutes before returning a guilty verdict. Apart from a nervous twitching of his fingers, Hicks gave little reaction to the news, and on July 1st, a sentencing hearing was held, and the judge ordered Hicks to be hanged until dead. Afterwards, Hicks gave a full confession of the murders and his life story, which was published as a book on the day of his execution. Hicks, for reason for his crimes, um, he said, quote, the devil took possession of me. And this is where this case uh, is going to begin like we would a normal case where we're going to go into the background. You th- you may think it sounds like this episode's wrapping up, but we're just going into Albert right. Hicks. Now really. we can find out what really happened. It's like happened. the midway point. So, yeah, so stay tuned for next week in yeah. part two <laughs> um, when we're going to dive into the pirate <laughs> that is Albert Hicks. <laughs> no. no. No, no, we're going to dive into it now. But, Let's do you it. know, we're, we're giving you guys everything you paid for, which is nothing, you freeloaders. <laughs> <laughs> Got him. Oh, that's good stuff, man. I'm sorry. I just keep pounding. It's just, it's just it too is. fun because, because some people get upset by it. It's just too fun. We love all y'all. We love all y'all freeloaders. If you didn't know, now yeah, you, know. you know. Um, so yeah, he he's behind bars and um, he knows the end is near. There's a moment where actually, um, PT Barnum, uh, infamous for doing things like this, parading around uh, clay sculptures of famous bad men murderers came to came to uh hicks in his cell and offered to do uh one of these famous wax sculptures of him and and hicks jumped at the opportunity which says a lot about his character and also puts into question some of his confession which is very panzram-esque and over the top um a lot of the stuff that he tells about his life story it's 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 you, you you know take it with a grain of salt this is his telling of his story may or may not be true there is some stuff to corroborates kind of like the panzram story where it's like it sounds crazy but then they were actually able to link some of the stuff that he said that's very similar to albert hicks's story and um he jumps at the opportunity to get this this uh sculpture of himself made and he lets he lays down on the bed and lets pt barnum's assistant uh pour a mold of his face and it turned out to look exactly like him apparently and there's actually a twilight zone episode in which the uh, that ha- actually had Albert Hicks in it, where it's like a, a wax sculpture came to life in the episode. That's a trippy ass show. I think I'm going to start binging. It's all on Netflix, like the entire catalog of Twilight Zone. That show was so ahead of its time. If you haven't checked out the the old episodes of the Twilight Zone, man, some of the premises they used on that show, the writing of it, it's like you've seen it recreated over and over again in modern times with other shows and they're like that's genius and it's like you go back and it's like well it's already been done on the twilight zone <laughs> it, so. but well and their recreation of albert hicks was strangely accurate too 
Like the clothes were pretty on point. They had him carrying an axe. They had the hat, you know, slooped down over the eye. Yeah, it's pretty damn accurate. We'll hear more about the axe soon when we hear what really happened on the sloop A.E. Johnson, which is coming up, the actual confession of that night and how it went down. But first, let's set the scene as to how this confession came about. And this is writings from the book that was written by him. I mean, he basically sat down like a lot of celebrities do and had a, uh, a writer write his story for him. He just told his story. And so this was written July 9th, 1860. After his sentence, Hicks seemed to lose that firmness which he had uh, hitherto manifested. His reckless indifference left him, and in place the, the stolid look which had marked he had marked his face from the time of his arrest and appearance of deep anxiety gave token that he had abandoned the hope which he had supported him, and that dread of his approaching fate, if not remorse for his crimes, had taken possession of him. So if we're finally seeing some emotion from him as he's locked up facing the death penalty. No, he's now, it's, it seems as though he's now actually sitting down and thinking, oh, fuck, what have I done? Um, he seemed to, And you're also to, seeing the, I was going to say, you're also seeing the actions of a desperate man here. You know what I mean? Like this is, yeah. his mortality is really starting to set in. So that's mm-hmm. another thing you have to take into consideration when, when thinking about these, these stories that he's telling mm-hmm. from here on out. You know what I mean? Yeah. He's thinking about his legacy. Yeah. He seemed to dread being left alone and often besought his keeper and the warden of the prison to keep him company in his cell. He was frequently found in tears and on being questioned as to the cause of his grief, expressed a deep anxiety in regard to the future of his wife and child, who was about 15 months old. And there was an interesting uh, situation with his wife in which the, the guards at the, at the jail he was in recorded a, a, a scene where she showed up and confronted him behind bars and was like, you're lucky you're, you're back, you're in those bars. Cause I'd come in there and, and destroy you. She was so upset at him. She's like, you have a child. Look at what you've done. You, you bastard, you know, like she was very upset. Cause I, apparently he had done a pretty good job of keeping secret how he made his money and whatnot. Maybe she was complicit. Uh, maybe not. Maybe she was completely blind to the whole thing. Um, if you judge it off of this scene that the, the wards told or the, uh, the guards told at the jail, it sounds as though she, she had no idea he was the, the kind of man he was. Um, right, because otherwise she has nothing to gain from coming down there and doing mm-hmm. this, making yeah. this scene. Like, what is, what's right. the big deal? Yeah. Otherwise, if you just wanted to save face and you didn't want to be associated with him, you wouldn't go down there and make this scene. You would just leave, change your name, move to another place. Mm-hmm. You know? He, yep. He was, he was often begged to make a free confession of his crimes, and though at first he stoutly denied having anything to confess, he at last sent for Mr. DeAngelis and offered not only to confess to the crime for which he stood convicted, but also to give a history of his whole life in detail, from his childhood up to the time of his arrest, and on condition that the confession should not be published until the day of his execution, and that all the proceeds arising from its sale should be given to his wife. This was agreed to by Mr. DeAngelis, and accordingly, on the 13th of June, that gentleman, accompanied by Miss uh, by an Eminalise, whoever that is, visited Hicks in his cell and there listened to his confession, which is given below. So we're going to hear now much of his life story um, that came from this confession. So Albert Hicks was born sometime in 1820. We don't have an exact date to do the celebrity birthday, unfortunately. He was born in Foster, Rhode Island. His father was a farmer who had seven sons. I believe there was like 13 siblings altogether, so like six, sister, six, six sisters, and uh, he, was the, he was the sixth son of seven. Um, 
And so, yeah, you know how it goes back then in farming times. It's like you just build an army of kids to maintain your farm. And if disease or uh, farm equipment gets them, like runs them over or whatever, you got backups. Right. They trip and fall in the hog pen. Yeah. Yeah, get eaten. <laughs> uh, they, that was, uh, we heard about that in the Willie Picton episode. As a kid, he was warned to not go in the the uh, pig pen because they, he was too small. And if he fell down, they would just eat him. Dude, it's a brutal reality, man. It really is. Like my, my grandfather has pigs. I think he still, he still does now. But when, when I was there, I wouldn't let my kids in there, man, because they'll eat anything. They'll eat like, they'll eat the metal. They'll chew on tires of the tractor. Like they don't give a shit, man. If anything sits still long enough, yep. they'll, they'll nibble on that shit. Yeah. So if you're not a Patreon uh, subscriber, that's the episode we did last night, last week for Patreon. Right. Uh, was, uh, we finally did Willie Picton. Right. So just hang on for two years and you can hear that if you're a freeloader. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So young, so young Albert Hicks was known to be a headstrong kid and a fighter. He never attended school and worked on the farm until age 15 when he ran away to Norwich, Connecticut and began his life of crime. Now let's go back to his writings real quick to get a feel for why he did run away and how uh, life was back then. He said, by the time I was 15 years of age, I grew tired of the, monst- uh, the monotonous life I had been leading, and my desire to roam and see the world and my seek of fortune took entire possession of me, so I began making my preparations to run away. I got together a small sum of money by, by hook and crook, and one night after all were asleep, I stealthily left the house and took to the road um, to Providence, from whence I proceeded to Norwich, Connecticut. Here I took the first important step in that career of crime which has made me a a prisoner in this cell and which will lead me eventually to the gallows. After arriving at Norwich, I wandered about seeking not employment but some means of uh, gratifying my desire for money in an easier way. And during the day, I strayed onto the railroad depot where I observed a number of trunks, packages of goods, etc., as a part of which I determined to appropriate myself. I love how he describes, he describes robbing in such a, like, sophisticated way. Beautiful way. (laughs) Like, it's very sophisticated. It's like, I uh, decided to appropriate myself with these goods of which I (laughs) was due in my own. In my own mind. Yeah. Yeah. Hilarious. Yeah. Um, He says, I hung about the depot. Uh, until night, and then watching my opportunity, I seized a package of goods, and leaving the depot in all haste, made my way outside of the town to some woods, where I examined the package, which contained laces and silks. I secreted some of the things about me, and not knowing to anyone whom I could dispose of them, I determined to go back home, which I reached in the course of a few days. So he went back home, um, but not for long, and then he he would uh, end up being arrested for petty crime. Um... He says, quickly arrested for theft, uh, he was put into jail. Of note is the fact that at the time, it wouldn't have been uncommon for a teenage runaway to be buggered by older inmates. Take with that, as you will, the buggered term sounds very British. You, were you buggered in jail then, mate? <laughs> yeah, it, it must does. be. It must mean molested, I imagine. That's what I'm thinking. Or sodomized or something along those I'm thinking, lines. Because this is, what, this is what hardened him, right? This is what turned him from a thief to a killer. Yeah. I think at first... This is the Panzram moment. Yes, because at first I think he's just, he's lazy in a way. Like, he's like, I'm not going to work this this shit my entire life and then die on this farm. Like, there's got to be easier ways to get money. So I think just getting money was his initial thing. He didn't really set out to hurt anyone. But I think after being buggered, I think it kind of uh, changed his mind. You know what I mean? It kind of changed his whole course of action. Yeah, because like early on, he just didn't, early on, he just didn't want the life that was laid out for him, farming on his parents' 
exactly. farm and all that and taking that over. He, in his own writings, here's some more uh, ideas of, of like his mentality back then. My only ambitions was to be rich, but I had no desire to, uh, to acquire riches in the plodding way in which our neighbor's West thorough life. My dream was to be, become suddenly rich by some bold stroke and then to give free reins in the passions and desires which governed me. I never, even as a boy, hoarded money, and I did not care for the mere possession of it. It was only valuable to me as a means of gratifying my passions. I used to wish that I could find the pots of gold and silver which rumors said had been buried in our neighborhood by pirates and robbers, and used to listen to the rapt attention and stories of pirates, robbers, highwaymen, etc., which my companions used sometimes to relate. So he always... It sounds from the time he was a kid, he wanted that exciting bad guy life, which he would later uh, manifest. You know, he would later become what he wanted to be as a kid. You got to give him credit for that, I guess. <laughs> he saw the life he wanted and he went out and took it. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> he had his dreams and he achieved them. <laughs> I mean, it's funny that even, yep. you know, in that early writing when he was when he was talking about being 16, it's like he already knew that he was going to be at the gallows. It's like he'd already accepted that fate. Oh yeah, you know what I mean. I mean, if you're preparing yep. for that your whole life, and he was just gonna have fun while it lasted. Yeah, exactly. Just see how far I can ride this train. Wow. Yep. And so early on, he got he got arrested, obviously, and uh, potentially buggered while in jail by older inmates. Um, and and so and also by the age of sixteen, uh, the when his sixteenth year, he ended up in a year of solitary confinement. And this was a very, um, is, this changed him. I mean, he already was headed on a bad mm -hmm. path, but by his own confession, this, this year in solitary confinement really changed him and made him angry. And this is that, I, I'm going to take on the world, that pans, that pans ran mentality that Right, that but he kind of brought this upon himself um, because he kept escaping. He kept, he kept getting out one way or another, and, so every, and he kept getting caught. So every time he he got caught, they yeah. just kept giving him increasingly severe sentences. Like I wonder what it would have been like if he just had committed a robbery, done his time, and so on and so forth. Or maybe, mm -hmm. or maybe he was like, "Fuck it." Right. Worst case scenario, they put me in solitary. At least I'm not going to be, you know, buggered by older inmates anymore if I'm in solitary. Maybe he thought that was a better way. Well, if he thought that, yeah, if he thought that, then he was wrong because by his own confession, that that year in, in solitary confinement uh, drove him mad and, oh, and no doubt just angry at the world. So this is from his writings. This is from his writings. During this confinement, it seemed as if every wicked quality of my mind was brought in full activity. I used to sit and plan all sorts of desperate schemes, and a feeling of the most unquenchable vengeance took possession of me. For I fancied myself persecuted, wronged, and ill-treated. I imagined the world had declared war against me. And I determined as my term of imprisonment should expire to war in turn upon the world. At last the long wished for an end of my imprisonment came, and I was discharged. Swearing vengeance against the whole human race, I left the jail and went back to my father's house, where I remained for a short time, and then went to Lower Gloucester, where I, be where I went to work in a shoe manufactory, having learned the trade of doing my confinement in the, North, the Norwich jail, but this humdrum sort of life was little suited for me, and besides, I felt so incensed against mankind that I found it impossible to restrain my thirst for vengeance on society for the fancied wrongs it had done to me. So I resolved to go again into the world, and going to Providence, an old shipping master by the name of Chittle shipped, on, shipped me on board the whale ship Philip Tab bound for the northwest coast of the of america the ship belonged to warren ri where i joined her in the course for a, of a few days i 
uh, I no sooner got on board than I began to make mischief among mischief among the crew, among whom I got up a series of rows and fights. I gratified wicked and evil propensities with the total disregard of consequence, either to them or myself. I had no fear, nor did I care for anybody or anything. So this begins his life of pirating. He begins boarding a bunch of different ships, and he would create mutinies on the ships. He would uh, create a divide between the workers on right. the ship and, and uh, the people um, benefiting from them, the captain and whatnot, and he would just stir shit up, and he was kind of like forgotten about. Like he, he was able to do this without the blame turning to him. He was able to get people fired up, getting into fights and whatnot, and eventually it would lead to a lot of times the, um, the, the captain and the people running the ship being tied up and uh, they would basically rob the ships and whatnot. Yeah, I'm sure he gained a few allies too. You know, he gained people on his side, created some alliances, oh, yeah. and then probably later killed those people as mm-hmm. he moved to the next ship or whatever. Because there was nobody that really stuck yeah. a, stuck around with him, and I don't think you could. You know what I mean? And then anybody who's willing to pirate right. with you, I mean, how long can you trust him anyways before they turn on you? So I'm sure he left a, a yeah. wake in his, in his path. Yeah, he did. He went on like a world tour of of robbing, killing. Um, the account given by Hicks for the next twenty years is murder and mayhem on the high seas, from gold fields of California throughout South America, Mexico, the South Pacific, and Atlantic trade triangle. Ship mutinies and highway robberies were his main occupation. Hicks and an accomplice typically killed their victims and stayed on the move, spending money on alcohol, prostitutes, and fine clothes until it ran out. Yar, that's the life we're living, mate. Yeah, I thought you didn't care about money. <laughs> well, I mean, if it gets you, if it if it gets you uh, what you want, alcohol and sex and everything else. But I mean, well, of course, everybody. I mean, well, isn't that why everybody wants money? I mean, you don't want money just to have it in your hand. I mean, right. I feel like if you if you value these types of vices, then you you do value riches if you want yeah. to keep that lifestyle. Yeah, well, I think uh, he just didn't have any plans on uh, saving for retirement or anything like that. Oh, it's like he no, spent no, it as no, soon as he I don't got think it. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think he had any. No, he I had mean, none of the plans of that. If you know you're always going to end up in the gallows, what's the point of saving for retirement? You know, exactly. Hell yeah. What was life expectancy, anyways? I mean, he lived a long yeah. life considering the the life yeah. he lived. Yeah, um, he described this time as living quote. Living a wild guerrilla life, plundering all who promised anything like booty, and never hesitating to take the lives of such as resisted or were likely to betray us. We spared neither age nor sex. How many times during this period I dried my hands and dyed my hands in human blood, I do not know. No prayers, no entities moved us. It seemed as if my heart was dead to every human feeling and was a stranger to pity and every soft emotion. That is scary. Mm. That is scary. You could pair that up. That almost sounds like it came from Panzram's mouth if he was a pirate. You know, it's like it, this. They, these, these two could have taken over the world. They could have been like the, the evil version of Batman and Robin if, if him and Panzram would have gotten together. Until they killed each other. <laughs> I don't know, man. If they, they were, if they could have, they seemed like they had the same mentality. I mean, yeah, obviously, Panzram leaned maybe. more towards the sodomy side, but. <laughs> right. <laughs> Panzram tries to uh, cuddle up to him in one night. Uh, I don't think it's going to work out. <laughs> He probably would have immediately tried to overpower Hicks and sodomize him, but Hicks was no small man himself. They were both like pretty similar builds. Like I, I think Hicks was about six foot, which was uh, tall for the time period. Panzeram about the same, right? He was like six foot. Yep. They were both strapping and strong. It would have been a battle, man. Oh yeah. Those two would have had a hell of a fight as uh, as Panzeram tried to uh, tried to overcome and sodomize him. Oh yeah, no doubt, no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> it is possible Hicks killed hundreds of people. However, he was known as a storyteller. When his confessions were published, the New York Times raised some doubt about the accuracy, 
but according to biographers, there was evidence to support at least some of the stories. Hicks eventually washed up in New York City at the age of 40, newly married with a wife who knew nothing of his criminal past, and the couple, the couple had recently had a young child. They settled in the notorious Five Points District of the Lower Manhattan and allied himself. he allied himself with Bowery gangs. He joined in on whatever activities promised excitement and loot. Quite a life this guy lived. He then goes into the Gangs of New York lifestyle, if you've seen that movie, in, in the Five Points of New York back in the day where it was just a culture war, all these different immigrants moving into the same area and just gangs. That, that, that time period in New York City is so crazy and interesting. And he's right in there in that mix too. So this guy's a interesting. If you believe his writings, he's lived quite a life uh, of evil for the most part. Uh, it was around this time when he met Captain Burr while looking for the right set of criteria uh, in a, a ship to board and rob, and the A.E. Johnson fit the bill perfectly. So that's that's where this came about. He won over the trust. He saw this ship that was going to be going out on this oyster run, and it was only going to have three men aboard it. He wanted a, a boat with uh, the smallest amount of men possible because he knew he was going to have to kill them all. And the A.E. Johnson, as I mentioned, it, it fit the, the bill perfectly because Captain Burr, uh, as we mentioned, was a very trusting guy. And right away, he grew to like whatever persona that uh, Hicks was putting out as this Johnson character. He bought into it. They became friends, at least from Captain Burr's standpoint. And obviously, it was just an act for, for Hicks. And uh, yeah, he, get, he went over his trust. And this is when we find out what really happened that night. And this story goes full circle. What we find out... The crime that finally took down Albert Hicks, and we find the ghastly details. And if you uh, are squeamish, I don't know why you're listening to this show, but this is where it gets pretty ugly, man. The description of this night on that ship is one of the more brutal crime sprees, you know, of murder, this triple homicide. Uh, it, it, the details are, are pretty bad, so just prepare yourself. Um, so it was nighttime as the... Yeah, so here we go. It was nighttime as the boat neared the Narrows, quote-unquote Narrows. Captain Burr and Oliver had retreated to their quarters to sleep. Um, the other deckhand, Smith, had a night duty, so he was up on the deck uh, doing his night duty, and Hicks joined him on the deck, politely taking a turn on the wheel. Hicks said he, quote, saw something and pointed out as Smith, um, um, for Smith to look. The old, what's that over there, the Marty McFly. Oh, over there! Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so he does, he does the old look over there. Um, Smith said he didn't see anything, but Hicks told him to look again, so he did a double. Try. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Fool me once, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Hicks told Smith to look again. Smith again turned his back, and Hicks grabbed a sea axe and struck, the, struck a, bl a blow to the back of Smith's head, making him fall to the deck. Hearing the commotion, Oliver Watts stuck his head through the cabin hatchway, Hicks again struck with the axe, cutting Watts's head clean off, according to his uh, his story. He said, you know, so he said that uh, that poor Oliver had heard the commotion up on the deck and stuck his head out, uh, and with one blow, apparently this this uh, axe was sharp enough and Hicks was strong enough to completely de decapitate him. Um, Hicks recalled that the body slowly sagged downward and the head rolled onto the deck, now covered with blood. He was now covered with the blood of two brothers. Hicks then carried the bloodied axe into Captain Burr's cabin, who was now awake. He had heard the commotion up there. The captain was also a tall, strong man, and the ensuing fight lasted a while, with Burr almost strangling Hicks to death. Eventually, Hicks managed to slash the captain with the axe, slicing off half of his face, including an eyeball and nose left hanging on the axe blade. Exhausted from the struggle of killing Burr, Hicks searched the living quarters for loot. 
So just a horrific description of oh uh, half an eyeball still being on the axe blade as well as like a piece of his nose. Right. Oof. I think there was some other... There was some other... Uh, that fight must have been brutal because if you think back to the description of the boat with like the broken coffee pot mm-hmm. with hair and blood on it, it's, yes. like, it's like, what happened with that? You know what I'm saying? And the, Captain Burr the put up found, a hell of a fight. Yeah, yeah. Like who got bashed with the damn coffee pot? Somebody got hit with that right. shit. Right. Hopefully there was hot coffee in it too. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, if well, it was Hicks maybe. that got hit by it. I was about it. to say, it doesn't seem like it was Hicks though. I mean, I'm pretty sure there would have been burns and shit know. on his face. He would have been even more recognizable, you know? Yeah. When Hicks returned to the deck, he saw a movement and was shocked to see Smith, the one that he had struck first and did the old look over there yeah. move. He was back on his feet and moving towards him. And which is crazy because the book, the Harold Schechter book, made it sound as though that that initial blow he did to Smith had like split his head wide open. So if he was back up on his feet and moving towards Hicks when he went back up onto the deck, right? That is just so crazy, and he must have been doing it almost in like a zombified state, you know? Like it was just sure adrenaline. Just yeah, just he was in shock, and adrenaline kicked in, and just that yeah. that fight for survival kicks in. At first, yeah. he believed it might be a ghost, um, Hicks seeing this this bloody man walking towards him. Hicks then forced the injured man overboard, but Smith grasped, grasped a railing and hung on for dear life. Damn, what a fighter. Hicks then swung the axe and, yeah, Hicks then swung the axe and chopped off Smith's fingers, which fell onto the deck and the rest of Smith slipped into the water. Hicks then threw their other bodies and the axe into the water. The A.E. Johnson had been running unattended during the murders and struck another ship. The, the schooner J.R. Mather breaking the Johnson's math, uh, main mast and bringing down her rigging. So that was that collision we spoke about in the middle of the night, and it may or may not have been going on during the murder spree. Hicks set out to sink the ship with evidence of the killings by drilling a handful of holes in the keel. He then took the money, about $230, in the possessions of the murdered crew and the abandoned ship, Oh, and abandoned ship on the rowboat. He rowed for shore, landed around daybreak next to a farmer's field on Staten Island, and that's where the investigation began that we went through earlier. Um, so back to uh, post-conviction, sitting, awaiting, being executed. He was scheduled to be executed by hanging on Friday the 13th, 1860, uh, Friday, July 13th, on Bedloe's Island, which is now famous because of the Statue of Liberty. It's the island that the uh, Statue of Liberty sits on, Liberty Island. An, es- an estimated 10,000 people viewed the event from boats anchored in New York Bay. That's quite a scene. If you imagine you're about to be hung, you're being marched out there, and there's just a massive party going on. It's, it looks like Woodstock. <laughs> Woodstock on the shore with boats everywhere and people partying. And you know that party's just going to continue on after you die. That's just weird to think. Like, you're being marched to your death. You're going to be dead in a matter of 10 minutes, and that party is just going to keep going without you. It's just weird to me. That is weird. But you know what? That's kind of what he, he gets what he deserved here. I'm kind of glad that a lot of his legacy was covered up. Like, I'm, I'm not glad that the Civil War happened, obviously, and the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Right. But, but it serves him right. Someone who wanted to be remembered, someone who wanted a wax sculpture of his face, someone who who told all these tales and all this stuff. And I'm glad something something more positive, like the Statue of Liberty, took place on that island to also overshadow his hanging and the hanging of probably a bunch of other shitty people, uh, you know, in America's history. So it's yeah, it's kind of good. It's it's good that this worked out this way, in my opinion. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Yep, I agree. Uh, Hicks was sharply dressed in an electric blue suit he had made for the occasion. 
His old buddy P.T. Barnum had actually provided him with the suit to be executed in. Uh, Hicks apparently had been given an, a, an outfit to wear to be executed by the guards and was like, I'm not wearing this shit. Um, P.T. <laughs> Barnum gave me quite the getup. And right. as a newspaper described, quote, his coat was rather fancy being ornamented with two rows of gilt navy buttons and a couple of anchors and needlework, a white shirt, a pair of blue pants, and a pair of light pumps, and the old casa that wore that he wore when arrested completed the attire. Uh, in exchange, P.T. Barnum got his original clothes. Oh. Like, that was part of the trade. Oh, he that's like, what he... You know what I'm saying? Like I'll, He's yeah. like, I'll give you this nice suit to wear during your hanging, but I want your clothes. So I think something along the lines of what he... He must have adorned the wax uh, sculpture yes. of Hicks in the original clothes. Oh, man. Exactly. The gray pantaloons and all that stuff that yeah. he was... Yeah. I mean, I think it was something like that. Something from Hicks's own attire. Yeah. So, just a little fun fact there. Yeah, and as we had mentioned earlier, Hicks liked to wear the the slouched hat down low over one eye to give him a mysterious appearance. He made no gallows speech, only directing the executioner to, quote, hang me quick, make haste. The gallows used in in Hicks' execution was not the traditional platform type with the trap door, but instead had Hicks stand on the ground and counterweights that were attached to the rope were cut free. So they were supposed to make the counterweights heavy enough um, in relation to his body to snap his neck upon dr- uh, cutting the rope free to the weights. Um, however, we got uh, we got kind of lucky, and maybe the maybe the calculation of the weights was intentionally a little lighter than it should have been. Um, but his neck did not snap upon the release of the rope, and he uh, ensued to struggle for the next three minutes um, before his limbs began to relax. It's likely that his neck did not break, and instead he died slowly of suffocation. However, when his body was brought down, a physician looked him over and detected a slight contractions of the heart muscles. Better safe than sorry, Hicks' body was strung back up, and the party continued on. <laughs> I was going to say, you imagine the boats all sailing away. <laughs> all right, show's <laughs> over, and then, uh, wait, they're stringing him back up again. <laughs> wait, wait, oh, oh shit, right. roll it around. <laughs> he was uh, then left up for another 30 minutes just to be sure. Soon after his burial, grave robbers stole his body and possibly sold the cadaver to medical students at Columbia University. This is a common thing, something we talked quite a bit about in the uh, H.H. Holmes episode. Uh, the, they could, you could uh, get quite a, quite a return for a, a body if you brought it to a medical school. But uh, as we talked about uh, before we started recording, it's, it, it's also possible someone snatched his body up because he was Albert Hicks. And at the time, he was quite a big deal all over the newspapers right. and everything. And who knows who has them? P.T. Barnum might have bought his body later on. Or... I wouldn't put it past him. Yeah, and for years, and for years after his death, there were unfounded rumors of his survival and escape. He's basically like Tupac at this point, still putting out <laughs> albums. Exactly. So let's talk about the legacy of Albert Hicks. Hicks soon became a legend in the New York underworld with the help of showman P.T. Barnum, who had met Hicks in prison and made a deal that he would allow Barnum to take a death mask while he was still alive. He would give Hicks a new set of clothes, the ones we mentioned that he got uh, hung in. In exchange, Barnum would use the casting to create a full-size wax statue of Hicks wearing the same clothes as when he was committed to the murders. The wax likeness was displayed for 10 years and seen by millions of visitors before it melted in a fire, which is crazy. Because I think the fire took place on the anniversary of his hanging, didn't it? It was like... It, it was did. T- five years. I think it was five years to the anniversary. Well, it says it was displayed for 10, so it must yeah. have been 10 years to the day. Oh, okay. So 10 years. Okay. Yeah. That's crazy. 
biography. No, it was within five years, like the Civil War and all that shit happened, and then yeah. Abraham Lincoln's death, yeah. right? Like all that happened yeah. in that tiny period. Okay. And that's when people stopped caring about right. him anyway. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, Bi- yeah. yeah. All's well. Yeah. Biographer Rich Cohen argues that Hicks originated a gangst- uh, originated a gangster clothing fashion that can still be seen in art in real life. The Hicks look of a, slo- a sloth hat pulled down low over one eye, a long-tailed monkey jacket and pumped footwear were displayed at the Barnum Wax Figure Museum where millions observed it. So he may have, like we said, inspired a whole look that gangsters would use. And that Rich Cohen author wrote another uh, a book as well that we didn't get, but sounds like it was a really well-made book. And I think it came out like this year or last year. I actually listened to an interview with uh, Rich Cohen and learned quite a bit more about this case than I had even learned in the, uh, the pirate book that we got. Um, so yeah, check that out. This style passed from gangster to gangster and through generations as sort of a badge of association with legends of the past, eventually reaching Hollywood films in the 1930s and broader culture to the present. Hicks was hung on the Friday the 13th, as we mentioned, and there is some speculation that he originated or helped solidify a superstition of the day's ill luck. His name became a slang gambling phrase, meaning six on a pair of dice. Interesting. So these are just little snippets of, uh, his uh, legacy afterwards. Henry Sherman Backus, a composer of murder ballads that romanticized crimes, dedicated a ballad titled, quote, Hicks the Pirate, sung to the traditional Irish tune, The Rose Tree. Um, another little snippet, Hicks was also perf- portrayed as a wax figure in the Twilight Zone episode, as we mentioned earlier. The new exhibit is the episode. In the show, wax figures in a museum come to life and commit murders when they learn their exhibits is to be shut down. And in this episode, Hicks is accurately dressed in a slouch hat and carries a sea axe. Very creepy. <laughs> that is super creepy. That's, I mean, But cool at the same time, though. That's an interesting, especially since there was actually a wax figure made of him. Yeah. Yeah, that makes it that much more creepy. Yeah, as we mentioned, that show so ahead of its time, and I definitely I'm gonna I'm gonna binge some Twilight Zone episodes. I've already seen a bunch of episodes, but there's like five full seasons. There's like a shitload of episodes, so all of them, all of every one of them I've seen has been original and interesting as well. So better watch them before they take them down. Yep. All right. Well, that's our pirate episode on Albert Hicks. We hope you guys enjoyed it. The last pirate, we're calling it. That's right. The last pirate. Yep. The last pirate of the seas. There's obviously a lot of internet pirates now, but right, right. <laughs> we're not. Well, everyone's a pirate nowadays. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. Let's get to some sponsors and some shout-outs. Oh my Gaia. All right. Let's do it. Let's talk about Oh my Gaia. Let's do it. Oh my Gaia is an innovative, all-natural deodorant, fragrance, and beard oil company specializing in paraben and aluminum-free products. Their innovative line of deodorants inhibit the growth of odor-causing bacteria while maintaining effectiveness. At Oh My Gaia, they use only all-natural paraben and aluminum-free organic ingredients. There's a ton of scents to choose from. There's vanilla, cherry almond, sandalwood, lavender, lemongrass, Egyptian musk, coconut, dreamsicle, leather, lumberjack, honeysuckle, fireside. And we have our very own scent called True Crime Pine, which has our old-school logo on it with our headshots. It's pretty dope. And because you're True Crime Guys listeners... You can get 15% off your order by using the code word CREEPER. That's C-R-E-E-P-E-R at checkout. And you can do this at shop underscore ohmygaia on Instagram or ohmygaia.com. That's O-H-M-Y-G-A-I-A.com. Stop putting aluminum in your armpits, peeps. Quit smelling like Go all shit. Natural with your deodorant. Quit giving your pits cancer. It's I just placed another order. We're running low, and it's it's like an epidemic right now. It's like a it's full panic, full panic over the household because uh, my wife's running low and I'm running low. So we just placed an order. Wendy's getting it right over to us. So yeah, definitely 
give them a try, man. They also have awesome beard oils that if you're growing your beard out, winter's kind, you know, it falls around the corner. It's going to get chilly. You're going to want to protect your face. That's right. Man, so so get uh, some beard oil as well. They got some great sense of that as well. That's right. Um, I want to give uh, some love to some people who have taken the time to go and write uh, iTunes reviews and, and rate and review for us. So uh, if you have a second, go do it. Even if you don't want to write a review, you won't get a shout out because it, it doesn't, your name doesn't show up that way. But if you want a shout out as well, go rate and review on iTunes. Um, obviously, we're not going to give you a shout out if you give us a yeah, one star. We just pretend just like we can't see it. Pack your bags and move on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I want to thank SRO1107, Katie Hintz, Gene ZE, Reb Hole 1984, Atlanta Rose, Kalu Ann, uh, Natalie Z, Dre NG, The Z3 Theory. D-H-X-H-R-J-S. Yeah, that's just like somebody passed out on the keyboard. Uh, oh, they were they were one star anyway. Fuck them. Shanny Pants oh, 34. <laughs> that, that's probably why. That's probably why it's a one star. Yeah. They passed out and they were like, oh. <laughs> they seem like some real real smart fellers or fart smellers over there. <laughs> Taylor X, XR Brew. Uh, Esger247. Monkey nice. underscore socks. Stingray1977. A Brown1234567899. Row Row Post. Uh, yeah, thank all of you guys for taking the time to go and write those. And if you uh, if you listen on Stitcher and you review on there, we get around to those every now and then because we just don't get the same volume that we get on iTunes. Right. Dude, uh, important to mention also on iTunes, speaking of which, we they finally created a true crime category. It's yes. about damn time. I was going to say True crime has been the biggest subgenre in podcasting for how many years now, and they haven't had a category for it. So now we can finally get our, our just due. Like we finally are on a list the top charts because we're in our correct category. So like we're sitting around the 60 area. It kind of fluctuates. We were at like 66. Then I checked it. We were at 59. Dude. So you guys can help us climb that yeah. chart, guys. Hell yeah. The the reviews, they now they mean they mean even more. More. Like yeah. honestly, because we can move up. I think we were at 56 uh, before I, before we started recording this morning. Nice. Uh, this, is, this is Sunday morning here. Um, so yeah, guys, the reviews help a lot. If you can't afford to be a patron at patreon.com slash true crime guys, then that's the best way to help the show, guys. You help us move up in the charts, you know, and then we we look better for advertising and things like that. And yep. it can really help prolong the show. We really appreciate that. Yeah, and a big shout out to Esther from Once Upon a Crime for letting us know that 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 we were on that list. We we didn't even know. Yeah. So no. So that's that's awesome. That's she great said news. She, she said she was more excited that we were uh, like at sixty than than she was <laughs> in like at like forty or whatever she is higher than us because yeah. her show is awesome. So, Hell yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, thanks, Esther. She's always she's always supported our show. We really yeah. appreciate that. Yeah, and she's actually been a guest on your show on patreon.com slash true crime guys, higher thoughts with Michael. She's been yes. a guest on your show and she's she's also had a conversation with us on Patreon as well, like like a year or yes, two ago. Has. We we sat down with Esther. So yeah, there's definitely bonus content on there. Uh go yep. check out uh patreon.com slash true crime guys. If you're tired of being a freeloader, if you want to stay a freeloader forever, I know we give you guys a lot of shit but it's you guys that's what the whole show is built around man like don't feel guilty if you we totally understand times are tight and if you can't afford it you can't afford it and we understand that so that's why we're that's still right. putting out three free episodes a month you know so we're still there we're still fucking riding for the for the for the creepers no matter what you're donating or whatever if you if you can't give anything that's totally cool just support the show you know, leave a review yeah. or whatever yeah or go follow us on social media follow us on instagram at true crime guys facebook true crime guys twitter true crime guys as well yep and also on uh, Instagram, guys, uh, in regarding to my move, I'm putting up some some personal artwork 
that I've done, artwork that was actually hanging in our studio here in Southern Nevada. And I'm auctioning off a few of those. Those should go up today. I tried to post them this morning, but Instagram was kind of being weird for some reason. It wouldn't let me post. And then I, I went on there and I noticed that the earliest post on my feed was like from hours ago. So I don't know what's going on with that. But stay tuned for those. We're recording on Sunday right now. It's 9 a.m. on Sunday. Uh, what is it today? August 4th? Yep. Right. Okay. So they'll, uh, I'll, whenever that post goes up, I'll run it for 48 hours. Right on. So guys, you go on there and you can, you know, if you, if you can, if you find something you like, throw a bid in the comments. I appreciate that a lot, guys. Every little bit helps. Yep. Um, you know, moving is very expensive, especially when it's across the country. So I appreciate that. Absolutely. Yeah. Help Michael get to North Carolina. That's right. Appreciate it, guys. Back home. All right, y'all. That's it. I believe we got another freeloader episode coming up next week. Yes, we do. Uh, I think we might try and tackle another one of these blood bloodlands uh, from Harold Schechter. Oh, yeah. I, I'm liking them. I think we might run that well dry, like they ran the uh, <laughs> like they ran the uh, oysters dry. Fucking, <laughs> the oysters dry in New York yeah. back in the 1800s. Exactly. All right. We find something we like. I'm, some, I'm known to eat the same breakfast yeah. year Dude, round. Hey, if I like listen, it, I don't like fix it if it ain't broken. Right. Right. Exactly. All right, y'all. We've we've rambled long enough. Okay. Keep creeping. We hope you enjoy the episode. Yep. Keep creeping, guys. Talk, get you. I'm talking to the creeper army. We out here making murder charming. <laughs> <laughs>